Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. You know, the typical bars were the other folks active in the industry that, you know, said, hey, this is a good way to get into Jamaica with a plant that's already on the construction. And one surprise bidder was uh, Virgin Group. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of cleantech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, welcome to episode 123. I am so pleased that you've chosen to spend some time with us today. Thank you. And today's entrepreneurial journey leads us down the path of a seasoned energy industry executive who finally ventured out on his own. And after a couple of years developing their portfolio, they successfully sold the company to none other than Sir Richard Branson's Virgin Group. Stick around to hear how he did it and much, much more. You can find more great founder stories and solar startup advice in the other 123 episodes archived over at mysuncast.com. While you're there, check out our Suncast tribe where you can be a part of my inner circle of solar warriors and trusted advisors. Just click on the member button and you can learn more. And now, get ready to tune up your skills, solar warrior, as we tune in to another powerful conversation here on Suncast. One last announcement that I'll be down in Miami at the Caribbean Renewable Energy Conference next week, and I'd love to see you there. This is one of the best conferences around to learn about how business is being done in the Caribbean and to meet the folks that are moving and shaking in that industry. Bruce Levy will be there. So will I. If you still haven't registered, you can get a 15% discount by using the code SUNCAST at checkout. That's the second checkout, not on the first page. I've linked to it on the homepage at mysuncast.com. Just click on the CREF logo and I hope to see you there. Now, on with today's episode. All right, Solar Warriors, this is going to be a fun one. Uh, Every now and then we get a chance to really dive deep into a conversation with someone who not only has been in the solar industry for a while, but really understands deeply how the power and energy business works. Today's guest, Bruce Levy, has worked in the power and energy industry for more than 35 years. He's run a major international utility, a US IP with over seven gigawatts of assets, and he's currently founder, president, and CEO of BMR Energy. Virgin Group acquired the Caribbean and Latin American project developer in 2016, and Bruce and his team are considered among the region's experts on clean energy deployment. Hey, Bruce, welcome to Suncast. Thank you. Good to be here. Absolutely. I also want to give a hat tip to our friend Matt Perks, who helped make this interview happen, and the good folks over at Antenna Group for helping coordinate. Bruce, as I recall, you are going to also be down in Miami at the same conference, CREF, the Caribbean Renewable Energy Forum, in a week or so. Is that right? Yes, uh, it's a great conference. It's probably one of the best uh, uh, industry conferences I've attended, certainly in the renewable space, where really you get to meet all the, the counterparties, the, your competitors, but also your customers. It's, it's, it's a great three days. I completely agree. I don't always get to go, uh, but the New Energy Events folks really put on a good show. 
Well, before we jump into what's happening in the region and how you guys are helping make deals uh, get done in the present day, I'd like to take a to take a trip down memory lane here for a minute and talk a bit about your uh, the background, sort of the foundation of how you uh, really what what informs how you approach the solar industry. So, can you tell me about your first exposure to uh, solar power? And, and you know, I'll let you go back as far as you want. Maybe even your first exposure to the energy sector and just how you decided that this is where you wanted to focus your career. Well, I guess it started when I went to college. I went, got a mechanical engineering degree, and you know, there's two directions you can go in mechanical engineering. Uh, one is mechanics, mm-hmm. and the other is thermodynamics. And I did all my work in thermodynamics and energy, and it was just what I did for school. And uh, I got a summer job while I was in college for Exxon. And what they do, and it's a nice company to, to, to do a summer job because they, they develop little projects for the summer interns to do. And my assignment that summer was to see if they could uh, save some money heating their oil and oil tanks if they put solar, not electric, but solar thermal plant on on the roof of these big oil tanks. And that was my assignment. And I, at the time, I knew nothing about solar energy. So I, I started learning and I uh, went out and got equipment uh, quotes on what you can heat with solar, which is still a, is still a part of the solar industry, but it's been overpowered by the electric side. And I came up with this great design that was going to uh, save them a lot of money. And um, they were thinking about it. And then as we had our first review of it, um, you know, what came up in the discussion, well, what if we added more insulation to the tanks? And sure enough, when we went back and looked at that, adding another inch or two of insulation was actually a better investment than putting in solar thermal heating. And I think that that kind of a that was my first experience in solar, but that really it really helped frame the way I look at the energy industry for my whole career. I graduated the next year and got a job with uh, Stoner Webster Engineering, who was one of the leading uh, power plant engineers at the time. They've since been acquired and reacquired by other firms. Uh, and uh, you know, I got in, I worked in power plants. My first assignment was working on a nuclear plant. Uh, that was ultimately canceled and not built. Uh, and I was always on the mechanical thermal side, the you know, how, how, what to do with the heat and how to get it from the right place and most efficiently and make the most power. Uh, so, so that was how my career started. And I worked for Stone Webster for nearly 10 years and all, worked on all kinds of power plants. Back then, the big breaking development was cogeneration. It, uh, it was uh, really being rein- reintroduced into the uh, U.S. market, and uh, so I moved from nuclear plant to a cogeneration plant, uh, oil- gas fired. And um, uh, about that time, oil prices. We had the oil embargo, and oil prices went, you know, very high. I mean, at that time, it was sixty, seventy dollars a barrel, which was mm-hmm. much higher than the ten. Right. $12 barrel. And so I began again working for Stone Webster on new technologies to try to uh, use energy more efficiently, maybe use coal instead of oil. Uh, and renewable energy really wasn't in the mix at that time. Right. So my career then changed a bit when I moved from Stone Webster to work for a utility uh, starting up an IPP sub. Um, again, IPPs hadn't existed. We didn't even call them IPPs back then. They <laughs> called them QFs, which stood for Qualifying Facilities, which was the first step in deregulation of the U.S. market. 
Right. And yep. um, yeah, <laughs> those, those, those are our, our, our oh. listeners in North Carolina are very familiar with QFs, right? Probably the last uh, good purple market for solar. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. That's interesting. So, so they didn't they didn't call them IPPs. They call them QFs. No, and not, no. The, not, the, the uh-huh. notion for those who aren't familiar, IPP is independent power producer or provi- provider. So go ahead. Yeah, we've had a, a couple of names for plants over the years based on the regulation. But in any case, what the thing about uh, QFs is they had to be meet a certain efficiency standard. The you know, overall efficiency had to had to be uh, greater than your average power plant in order to qualify to to be able to connect to the utility. And so I spent many years doing that. Developed a number of plants working for uh, the, the the GPU, which was the company I went to. It was uh, uh, they were they were actually mostly known for owning Three Mile Island, and actually the the the, I, the QF business that I was brought in to, to work on uh, was as a result of the TMI accident. Uh, the regulator wanted them to do something to discourage wow. uh, use of nuclear power. It was uh, kind of an interesting time. And uh, we developed, uh, you know, I built a team together and we developed projects. Our first project is in New Jersey. We did a couple in upstate New York, some in California, Florida. And, um, and and Georgia, we were the first uh, uh, QF in Georgia. I think probably maybe the last. I don't know. <laughs> uh, it was not a great state for uh, for competition. Uh, and so it was a it was an interesting uh, business at the time. It was uh, in much more efficient and lower cost than uh, utility power, especially along the eastern seaboard where most of the utility power was oil fired. Mm. It was more efficient and it was environmentally cleaner because the newer plants had the newer technology. And this again was developing nuclear. Is that right? No, no, no. It was all fossil at that time, but it was natural gas. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I guess. And mm-hmm. so that's where my career kind of grew. And you know, we then expanded internationally, and we we took the uh, the same business into the uh, first international power plant was in Colombia. And one in Bolivia, and then we did mm. uh, some in uh, Asia. So we uh, we had a, a pretty big business, and we grew it actually into utilities as well, and owned some electric utilities in Argentina and UK and Australia. So pretty big business, and I ultimately ended up as a CFO of GPU. Wow! And uh, you know, so it was like I think it was in eighteen or nineteen years I was there. Oh, fantastic! Great career, and then I uh, we 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 merged with another utility, and uh, I left and moved on to International Power. Yeah. Also doing fossil plants, they had uh, seven thousand megawatts. You mentioned of uh, they only had three thousand. We got there, but of uh, natural gas fired state of the art plants, uh, and it was it was there that we started seeing renewable energy beginning to you know take root in uh, in in the U.S. And Canada, and we decided to get into the renewable business, uh, and we went up to Canada. We looked in the states and Canada, but the first place we were successful was Canada, and we we bought a, uh, a small forty megawatt wind farm that had a team of developers with it. And uh, that team, we kind of set them loose, and we developed uh, over six hundred megawatts of wind hmm. and about thirty megawatts of solar in in Canada. Wow, uh, and um, so that was uh, that was a good uh, a good result, good story, and uh, the Canadian market is still very uh, very positive place for renewable energy, but mm-hmm. less than it was in, in you know mid two thousands. Yeah, and uh, and for those who are unfamiliar and from a timeline perspective, we're talking. <clears throat> you join International Power 
for and and were there for seven years through the NG acquisition. But 2004, roughly, was when you jumped into international power. I wanted to ask a quick question around expansion into new markets because it's interesting to me, Bruce, that. As an executive in a utility company, right? Utilities, uh, you're at GPU. Utilities kind of historically not known for diversifying uh, outside of the core business or the core <clears throat> generation, uh, you know, the, the fossil fuel generation, especially through the thousands and, and in the 90s. How did you, first with GPU and then with International Power, how did you evaluate the markets? Like, why was Columbia the first place that you went with GPU, for example? And could you walk, help us understand the thought process as an executive in that team? Was somebody in your team telling you this is where we should go? Were you guys doing a thorough analysis? How does that work? And were you also just going in to develop or going in to acquire? What was the acquisition model or the entry model? Uh, well, uh, let me to deal with the, the how did we pick markets. So uh, during the, the 90s and, uh, and early 2000s, most electric markets were going through deregulation. And deregulation was driven by the realization that non-utilities could build a power plant uh, as cheaply and often more cheaply or more efficient or lower cost uh, than a uh, than the utilities themselves could. And it had to do with uh, leverage. It had to do with being willing to use technologies that utilities would not be willing to use because they were too new. Uh, and, um, and so governments kind of caught hold to that and regulators caught hold to that. And they began to uh, encourage utilities in, in, throughout the United States to to open up their markets to competition, or at least on the generation side, wholesale generation side competition. Um, it was very effective in the Northeast, and that's why we started in New Jersey and New York and in California, and that's why we did some projects there. It was less widely adopted in other markets, like the Florida market had a brief opening, and we got some projects. And after that, uh, there hasn't really been another. Uh, QF in uh, in Florida or an IPP. There's still the plants we built are still there, mm. owned by other people. So so we looked for markets that were open to what we had to offer. That was one uh, criteria. The second one is markets where we could offer a competitive advantage. Uh, so some areas that did not open up the competition didn't open up because their power price was so low because they burned coal or they had a lot of hydro that a uh, a new plant that was using the latest technologies and the lowest cost, you know, natural gas fuels was not going to be competitive. So we looked for markets like that. When we expanded internationally, we used the same criteria. Colombia was really short of power. They needed power. Their, uh, their existing plants were not keeping up with their load growth. And so they chose to uh, look for third parties to come in and build power plants and sell the power to the utilities. We went down there. We had, we investigated the market we looked at the risks and the and the uh, you know the ability to actually succeed and we concluded it was a good market to go develop a project so our first entry into markets has typically been development it's changed a bit over time but uh, or at least uh, at least uh, in the Caribbean it has uh, recently that you know we could add the most value in that case Mm-hmm. So we um, went to Colombia, as I said, then we went into Bolivia, and that one was kind of a hybrid. We we acquired a piece of the generation that was owned by the government, and, and we didn't pay for it, actually. We committed to double it in size. And so oh, wow. we went in and took a, took over the operation of about 120 megawatts, and then we built a 120 megawatts more, and that was that was our entry fee. To, to They actually called it a... Uh, 
a capitalization as opposed to a privatization. So oh, it's a unique, a unique model. If I could pause there for a quick second, I'm curious how you found found out as you're expanding in these markets. How did you find out about this opportunity in Bolivia? And you know, you, we in a previous call we talked about <clears throat> how you were navigating deregulation throughout Latin America. Argentina was an example. Did you have a team in Latin America that was helping you find these deals and or were you responding to RFPs? How, how did that piece grow for the business? Uh, well, it was a, a lot of plain time. I spent, uh, I visited many, many countries, uh, well, all the countries in South America and uh, chose the ones and met with at each country, regulators, attorneys, uh, uh, other representatives from the industry, sometimes utilities. and. Uh, learned what they needed, what their plans were, and we selected countries that made sense from there. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, we did have people down there, but uh, we started really operating out of New Jersey. That was where we uh, we did the whole. Uh, so yeah, it was it was. Business. I mean, it was it was butt on a plane and sitting with utilities and the regulators and the market actors to figure out where the opportunity was, and and then folks would you know opportunities would surface. That's right. Okay. That's right. Yeah. So, no, I was saying, so that, that the business grew and it was very nice. And then, you know, we, I told you we got acquired. I went to International Power. and My role in International Power was a bit different. Uh, they had already been established in multiple international markets. Uh, North America was, was the one I took over. They had a group in Europe. They had a group in Asia and another one in Australia and a growing Middle East business. So we were, um, we were charged with... Uh, you know, in operating the existing business and uh, growing the business. And again, we did a combination of developing new projects and acquiring existing projects where we thought we could add some value. And uh, the value we added was in, uh, you know, we, we, were, uh, we had a whole fuel procurement team that was able to buy fuel and, and, uh, and you know, in bulk and maybe save a little money on fuel. We had a, a very strong operating team that was, uh, that was able to, you know, improve the efficiency of plants and more importantly, lower operating costs, you know, refining staffing, refining operating planning. So all things that really are needed to make uh, projects, even renewable projects, uh, work well is to, you know, operate them well. Right. And so we uh, we acquired some plants and we, as I said, developed others and ultimately grew from about 3,000 megawatts to about 7,000. And that was part of that growth was the uh, the renewables we did up in Canada. Yeah, That was probably my biggest experience in renewables. So it was pretty uh, re- relatively recent in my career. But, uh, but it was, well, I appreciate uh, that. Uh, I really appreciate the dive back into the history of how you navigated your way into I'll call it the need for renewables, right? From the perspective of a utility executive identifying and going after opportunity to support your existing generation with renewable renewable generation, this will obviously dovetail into some of the stuff that uh, the uh, the ways that you're building BMR today. But were you at International Power in the partnership period and and uh, subsequent acquisition by GDF Suez? Well, I kind of left when that happened. I was there for about nine months after mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they they had uh, GDF Suez had in the U.S. about a little a little fewer megawatts than us, uh, and it was uh, plants were a slightly different mix. But they had a bigger trading team and a bigger right. Well, uh, you know, 
different and, and the French really were buying most of uh, it wasn't really a partnership they bought 70% of the of international power and they got to decide uh, yeah. how they were going to run it got in it. any case so I that, that's when I left uh, again about nine months after the merger or the the, the whatever you call it <laughs> merger I guess is a good yeah, word yeah we'll call it a merger that's fine yeah. I left. yeah and for those and, who uh, for those who, are, who, understand, who know how the inter- international market has been developing I mentioned earlier NG, of course, NG acquired or merged with GDF Suez. So now all of that sort of falls under NG. But um, but at the time, it was uh, you know sort of two competitors in the U.S. market, one who very much wanted to grow uh, their international presence, and you guys had uh, quite an operation. So yeah, um, well, thank you. Yeah, you I, I'm always curious for folks uh, like yourself who could answer this question uh, probably a hundred different ways. If you're at a party with your wife, uh, you know, not industry related, you're just hanging out in New York, how, how do you answer the question, hey, Bruce, what do you do? You know, that's a really good question for, for me because, uh, you know, I, I've been in this, uh, this business a long time. And when I first started, and I'd say up until Enron, no one had a clue what I, what, when you said I worked, they thought I worked for the utility and I was a lineman. That was typically when I said, <laughs> that I said, I work for utility and power plants. I said, you're one of those guys on the truck. And, and so I'd have to explain it. And, you know, about three or four sentences into the ex- explanation, you saw the eyes glazing over. <laughs> so you kind of, you kind of stopped because they, they weren't listening anyway. I think Enron changed all that a little because people began to be aware that energy was traded and there were people other than the utility involved. And so right now when people ask, I simply say, I build renewable energy plants in the Caribbean. That usually satisfies them. But it, um, but it, 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 you know, sometimes people want to learn more and I'm, I'm happy to talk about business. It's something I've been doing for a long time. So, but it is a, uh, it's changed a lot. In the, in, I can in imagine. Decade, I, can, so. I can imagine. I mean, look, I, I have uh, far less experience than you, uh, and I often as well find it hard to say something that is succinct in a way that folks, uh, don't, their eyes don't glaze over. Uh, I appreciate it. I, like, I love what you just said. I built energy plant, renewable energy plants in the Caribbean. Well, for those unfamiliar, why don't we use that as a jump-off point and help us understand, uh, maybe give me the elevator pitch for BMR Energy. Okay. Well, you know, when I left GPU, when I left International Power, um, you know, I had to, <laughs> had to figure out what to do next. And I, I spent a year or two doing consulting. And consulting is a lot of fun, but it's not as gratifying as actually building power plants. So I mm. uh, kind of mid-2012, I said to myself, you know, I got I to gotta do something else and started looking around what we could do and what I could do in the way of, uh, you know, what I, what I was good at or at least had a lot of experience in. You know, started looking at the states and various markets we could look. I looked at batteries. I looked at renewable energy. And what I concluded in the states is that the market was so big now and there were so many really big players with lots of, uh, lots of capital that it probably wasn't going to be a place I could really participate in a, in a meaningful way. So I turned my attention to the Caribbean and that was a place that was, the market was smaller and smaller means the bigger companies aren't going to really spend a lot of time there. And uh, they really had a lot of renewable resource to, uh, to, to take advantage of and hadn't been taking advantage of it. So we looked around at, and <laughs> at what markets we could possibly tap into first. And lo and behold, I see that Jamaica came out with an RFP and it was mid, I guess, November, they came out with the RFP yeah. uh, to buy up, up to 100 megawatts of renewable energy. So I called two friends <laughs> who happened to both be uh, 
uh, out of work. And I said, I said, hey, you want to go see if we could do something in Jamaica? And we went down to Jamaica and we met with the utility and uh, and we found a site and we put together a bid. The only thing we needed for the bid is, is the money to fund it. And we had gotten all the letters of support we needed from uh, OPIC and IFC, who you know ultimately provided the debt, but we needed the equity. Yeah. So I reached out to a number of contacts I had in the industry and uh, who were now working in you know, some sort of equity role, private equity funds and other investment firms and <clears throat> got a lot of interest um, until I said the word Jamaica. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it was not a market that was viewed as a, a positive place to invest. Uh, it's changed a bit since we've been down there. Now there's lots of people wanting to invest in Jamaica. Uh, but that it was a little tough, but I did did finally hook up with uh, a newly formed private equity group, um, or it was actually part of a very big private equity group, but a newly formed fund uh, called American Capital. Mm-hmm. And that was headed at the time by Paul Hanrahan, who used to run AES. Right. Uh, and so uh, I knew Paul from the industry and he said, uh, yeah, we, we'll do Jamaica, but, you know, we don't want to put any money at risk until you win the bid. So we continued to fund. Uh, I continued to fund uh, the development work mm. that we put the bid in, but we got the equity commitment we needed to support the bid for American Capital. And we won the bid. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, we were the lowest price bid, too, which was, you know, pleasing because they... Uh, you know, you want to make sure you're really bringing value. At the time, electric rates in uh, electric costs in Jamaica, the rates were about 42 cents, and the uh, cost of electricity was about uh, 31 cents. It was all based on oil, um, and oil was really expensive at the time. Our price was 12.9 cents. Wow. The next lowest price was 13.5 cents, and uh, so we were. Uh, we were good. Then the, the big question that they had for us is, can you really do this? And, you know, we had, <laughs> the, the three of us had done all the things we'd done before. And that is we got quotes from equipment manufacturers. We had quotes from uh, installation contractors. We, it was based on a, a real development uh, approach. And uh, we said, yeah, guaranteed we can do it. And so we got the contract. It was a little bit of a challenge to negotiate a financeable contract because they had never done a renewable IPP before in Jamaica. Mm-hmm. They had some renewable energy, but it was all built by the uh, the government. And so we uh, we worked through with JPS and their people to come up with a contract that was financeable. We worked with OPIC and ISC to put the financing together, and mm-hmm. we were awarded the, the bid in October of 2013, and we uh, closed on the financing about uh, 13 months later. Is that pretty standard in your, expect- in your experience that it takes uh, you know, a year or so to close financing on a project, even though you've got uh, everything aligned? Uh, I think uh, it, the Jamaica timing was uh, the fastest I ever did a project. No way. <laughs> because in that year, we had to get our permits. We had to get our PPAs. We had to get yep. uh, all the equipment contracts yep. negotiated. And so 13 months is, you know, it, it was what we had planned. But it was looking back, it was record time. And these may seem like pedestrian questions to you, Bruce, but bear in mind that some folks listening may have never been involved in a deal and understand how the, res- the, the utility market works. So this is actually really great insight. You know, a 13-month time frame from the time that you actually get awarded is an, ex- an extremely accelerated time- timeline, especially when you're pulling in a multinational like OPIC, when, you, uh, when, you're, when you're finding lots of different folks to fill in what's, you know, what's known as a syndicate 
for the for the capital. So uh, that's a I mean that's a it's kudos to the leadership team as well to be able to pull that off in a market like the Caribbean, which is developing uh, a developing market, developing nations that require some form of multilateral funding. Right. Well, at the time, uh, OPIC and I, IFC were the only people willing to fund in Jamaica. Was this your first startup or, or entrepreneurial venture outside of a corporation? I, I guess so. Yeah. Well, yeah. Wow. It, not, I guess so. It was. <laughs> I mean, obviously, you had done, you've led entrepreneurial ventures. You've been, gone off and done sort of startup type things within a corporation. But this is the first time you actually stepped out on your own and said, I'm going to put my money on the line and, uh, and this is my business, right? Well, it's kind of interesting because my wife said the same thing to me when we closed on the financing for Jamaica. She mm. said, uh, you yeah, know, I guess you could do it. And I thought it was, <laughs> 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 I, uh, <laughs> she didn't think we'd do it. So we, uh, wow. Okay. Uh, after all these years, your, your wife is still, she's still, <laughs> she's still got such faith in you. <laughs> yep. What do you think have been uh, the easiest and possibly the hardest things about starting BMR? The easiest thing is, you know, we, we had a, a good environment where the, the, the government wanted the energy. The equipment suppliers at the time were looking to break into this part of the, the world. And so they were supportive. You know, we, we actually knew what we were doing. So it was kind of easy. Uh, the hardest part is the Caribbean processes, the Caribbean culture. It's very, um, it's kind of old British with a Caribbean flair. And mm-hmm. so getting things done quickly is not common, going in to ask for permission to do something and, and getting it near time. So there was a lot of, uh, I don't know if you want to call it, expediting going on. We'd yeah. be calling the, the environmental people. We'd visit them. We'd, you know, if they wanted, if they asked us for something, we'd get it to them so fast, they they didn't know what to do. And we'd yeah. call them right after that and ask them if they had a chance to read it. So, so that was that took time. It was not bad. It was, again, the Jamaica's a nice place to do business. Everybody's very nice there. Bruce, is that uh, what I hear from you? Was there someone on your team doing that or was that you personally doing it? And if it was the former, were, how much coaching was involved from you to help your team understand really how to get, how to, uh, get through the roadblocks? Well, you know, we, there were three of us. I, I did uh, the PPA, dealing with the government, uh, dealing with the local community uh, on a, you know, the, the MPs and the local uh, district leaders. Andy Ravito, who's uh, one of my partners, mm-hmm. uh, did really focus on the land lease, the financing, uh, structuring and such, although uh, he and I kind of ended up doing that together because both of us have a lot of experience there. And our third partner, Pip Decker, who was a, uh, you know, he, he had a lot of experience in wind. He worked for Noble and, uh, and Brookfield. He really did, dealt with the, you know, the local siting and the micro siting and the uh, transportation of the turbine. So we, we did it all ourselves, you know, a lot of work, but it was at the end, it was pretty gratifying. That's amazing. Yeah. Uh, I had, a, I have a question here and you, you mentioned you reached out to You've sort of teed this up. How and why did you choose Andrew and Pip? You know, you've you had an illustrious career. At, at this point, you you know had it. You had the the a pot full of folks that you could have cho- chosen. H- how did it come down to those two? And I'd love to hear from your perspective how you put that team together. <laughs> well, it's a, a little bit luck. Uh, Andy had been working at another developing group, and he left. And it, you know, what you do when you leave a job is you go around and you work your network. So he had come in to me about three months before and we were chatting. I had known him for a couple of years and he told me what he, you know, what he wanted to do and that he was uh, leaving his current position. And we, we agreed to keep each other in mind for things. 
the Pippin actually uh, wasn't. <laughs> I I had a fellow I called to be the, the the wind guy who had some experience, but he had just taken another job. So we kind of said, "Gee, we need a wind guy." We called uh, another guy we both know, and he suggested Pip, who had just also left the job he was in. He had been working at Brookfield and was, uh, I guess, they when, when they took over Noble's assets, they were streamlining, and he decided to leave. So, kind of by accident, I, you know, I'd seen Andy a couple of months early, and I called him up. I said, "You still, you still available?" And so that's how we that's how we did it. But you know, I I, I knew Andy, and and Pip clearly has the credentials from having worked at these uh, couple of wind farms that he, he did for um, Noble. So, you know, we had the right experience. Uh, yeah. You know, my, my expertise is just making sure things hang together. Mm-hmm. So we were all doing things, uh, you know, that needed to be pieced together. And so, you know, when I, I would probably, uh, you know, prob- be the one more saying, hey, we can't accept that term in this right. lease because it doesn't fit this term in the PPA and, and, uh, you know, and financing is another thing. You have to make sure everything fits for the financing. So yeah. it's, uh, you know, developing projects is a, uh, you know, it's probably the same process no matter what you're developing, whether mm. it's a renewable energy project, uh, another energy project or, a, or a, you know, a real estate development, you have to make sure the pieces all fit. And that's, Bruce, I really love that you are helping. I mean, you're helping me make this interview very easy. A lot of the things that I want to know and that my, uh, my listeners often want to know uh, center around how do you build that team and how do you decide where to point the, the, the bus as, you know, from the good to great perspective? How do you, once you've got the right team on the bus, how do you know where to go? You chose, as you eloquently ex- uh, expressed earlier, to go into you know, what we might call blue ocean, uh, Caribbean, Central America, where relatively speaking, there weren't a lot of folks, certainly in 2012. I mean, I, I was down there uh, with Trina at that time and, and it, there weren't a lot of folks that really understood how to build the, uh, the renewable side of the business. There were a lot of folks like yourself that came out of the fossil fuels industry. So focus on the Caribbean specifically, you got your first project, it's funded and you are looking at going out and, and build, developing or, or buying additional assets in the Caribbean and Central America. At what point did Sir Richard Branson and his team come into the picture. Would you help us understand how that came about? I'm really curious. Sure, sure. It's kind of a, it kind of answers a couple of questions. So we, we were very excited when Jamaica was, uh, you know, once we got it financed, we really turned our attention to, while well, keeping one eye on getting Jamaica built, we turned our attention to getting more projects. We have several others that we could do in Jamaica. We have uh, planned out and even some permitted, but Jamaica is not ready yet for more power. We hope they will be soon. But we were also looking at other islands and we we had some projects lined up to work on. And we got word down from American Capital that um, probably is going to be tough getting more money. And why was that? That was uh, because someone, you know, one of these big financial firms made a uh, an aggressive uh, move on the parent, American Capital, which is a big, big publicly traded fund company. Right. So they were now under, you know, I call it attack from a, a raider or one of these one of these companies that tends to try to find value in, in undervalued companies. And so they basically turned off the spigot on money. So we said, okay, we got all these things we're working on. They're kind of year out type things because they take long. So, you know, we said, we'll keep working on those, but we won't look to do anything that needs money real term other than some development capital. And we were doing that. And then it became apparent that American capital was not going to survive this uh, this challenge from this uh, other fund. Mm -hmm. And uh, they ultimately put us up for sale. 
uh, I guess they we weren't in a fund yet. We were seed a seed investment for a fund, so right. they put us up for sale. You know, the typical buyers were the other folks active in the industry that you know said, "Hey, this is a good way to get into Jamaica with a plant that's already on the construction." And one surprise bidder was uh, Virgin Group. They were the winner, which wow. uh, was was good. And the interesting thing was that they what they wanted was the development team more than they wanted the project. They're very happy with the project, but what they wanted is the development team because, uh, and Richard Branson has uh, said this a couple of times, and if, if you go to our webpage, you could hear him say it again, but yeah. uh, I, I love when he says it. He says, you know, he came to our uh, grand opening for our wind plant. He gave a speech. He says, you know, I, I've been trying to get more renewables in the Caribbean for a long time. He's worried about climate change, rising ocean levels, he said, and I funded a lot of NGOs to help do this. And he thought it would be better to actually have a company that went out and did it. So, you know, that took our our kind of <laughs> meaning to be uh, uh, or uh, reason for existing to from, you know, making investments in a in a market to get a return uh, to now really making a difference in the uh, the environment, which uh, makes it a bit easier to talk to people about why you're there. We've been owned by Virgin since October 2016, and we've uh, we've uh, continued to develop projects in uh, various places, and we've now added a few acquisitions to help, you know, add to some some bulk to our our assets. So, I, you know, what I hear an interesting story. I'm sure others, uh, it's not lost on them as well, is a, a, a very similar parallel. Only this time, you're on the opposite side of the table from when you were at International Power, bought that 40 megawatt wind farm in, in uh, Canada, ended up with uh, a good team of developers that developed more than 10x that in wind and solar in the Canadian market. Uh, is that, uh, I think it's really interesting that this acquisition by Virgin very much mirrors that, uh, that development model. Obviously, that wasn't your intention because uh, American Capital, you didn't know they're going to put you up for sale. I'm curious, though, if anything surprised you about Thus far, the Virgin investment, anything that uh, you didn't expect that came particularly easy or difficult? Like, ha- what's your reflection on that, uh, that acquisition thus far? It's now two years into action. Yeah, uh, well, you know, they're great people. Uh, Virgin is a well-known company. Richard Branson is, uh, is known by everyone. You don't <laughs> go anywhere in the world, say Richard Branson, they know who he is. I, love it. Uh, the, the, I would say that the biggest challenge we've had, and it's, it's a, you know, not an unexpected one, is we are their first investment in the energy business. Uh, they've got investments in lots of other businesses, but uh, never in energy. And it is, if as anybody from outside has tried to step into this business knows, it's a very complicated business. A lot of things are intertwined. Things that make perfect sense in a regular commercial business don't make sense in a in a, an electric uh, utility type business. Same. So there's there's a lot of explaining and education, and and I, I think it's uh, you know they they are used to making investments and they are used to uh, managing diverse different markets. So I, I think, uh, you know, they're pretty good learners. So we don't, uh, <laughs> we haven't really had any, uh, any real issues. Yeah. Uh, and so we're very happy being part of Virgin and, uh, you know, Richard Branson has been very supportive. We, we had him, uh, you know, at a, uh, last year at the Cref conference, we had a, uh, had him down mm-hmm. there for a cocktail party. And yeah. it was, it was I was going to ask again, if he's going to be very, back again this year. <laughs> <laughs> No, no, we we, didn't, we don't want to we don't want to abuse the privilege. So for we, sure, uh, 
yeah so no he's a he's again he's he's a charming guy he's uh he knows he knows lots of things about everything but he really is passionate about uh you know the environment and renewable energy so that's that's a, he's a great uh, a great owner to have yeah i can i can only imagine i mean it must be a dream coming from the perspective he as an owner coming in to invest in a team he spent what he thought, I, I bet he thought was probably a one-year process that turned into what, three plus years to get solar on Necker Island? It, it was a, an extremely drawn-out process as he explored and tried to understand how solar uh, could be deployed on his own island to begin with. So it must be uh, what, what we might call very patient capital uh, sitting behind you now at BMR. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the, you know, I'm, I'm not the one to talk about how, how Virgin decides what to do, but they typically make long-term investments. They very rarely sell out of an investment. They often sell down, but stay in. So it's, uh, you know, when he, when he, when they approve an investment, they're, they're not approving it to figure out when they're going to flip out of it and, and make, make a, a gain. They're looking at it as, you know, how do we grow this and maybe make some gain by selling half of it to someone else, but mm. it's, uh, it's uh, it's clearly a longer term view, which is important in the power business because the power business can't build a power plant with less than a 20, 25 year life. And most of them are longer. Hey, I got a quick question for you. Are you a manager running a solar sales team or an engineering team? Or maybe you're one of the engineers or salespeople on that team. And you, like many of my friends, are waiting days on end until the engineering team can get back with a design because they're frankly backlogged and they're the critical path. Hey, look, can we stop the madness already and empower the sales and engineering team with a true productivity and accuracy tool? It's called Helioscope. Now, I could tell you all about how DNVGL report shows reliability to within 1% of their common models. And well-known banks like Wells Fargo accept Helioscope reports in place of PVSYST. But what you really need to know is that system design is no longer in the black box of engineers and CAD drawings. It is speeding up the sales process and quality for thousands of customers. 3D design, rapid proposals, bankable simulations, even one-click sharing through Energy Toolbase. The list goes on. Look, head over to mysuncast.com and click on the Helioscope banner on the homepage. And as a Suncast listener, you'll be given an extra 30 days to your free trial. That's right, 60 free days to see what Helioscope can do for you and your sales team. Helioscope is fast, easy, and bankable. So go ahead, start a free trial. Get 30 days on me. If you're enjoying Suncast and you'd like to have access, not just to all the additional stuff I can't publish in the primary feed, but also the back channel of conversation, chat, webinars, and inner circle advisory that other solar warriors are enjoying, consider checking out the Suncast tribe. You can learn more at mysuncast.com forward slash member. You know... It's a famously tough market to work in. Why go there uh, as opposed to, you know, you worked in Argentina, which subsequently has become a boom, uh, Colombia, which as well has, uh, is finally starting to grow. Why the Caribbean ahead of other markets? Was it just the Jamaica opportunity or is there something more uh, deep-seated in the philosophy and vision of the company? Well, I think it's clearly, uh, you know, it's, it's a market that has great renewable resources. That's the first uh, you know, thing that's very important. Second is it's got uh, a lot of 
uh, a lot of different customers. <laughs> Every yeah. island's got a slightly different story. Some islands have more land than others. Some have a lot of land, but it's all mountains. Some have hydro, some have nothing uh, other than oil. And so each, each island is a, a custom response. Uh, and I think that's, that makes it more interesting, but it also, again, makes it only really available to people that want to spend the time here. You can't, you know, airdrop in, put a proposal in and leave for a custom, you know, island-sized project. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also, uh, you know, it, it, you have to really know the island, like the transportation in, in Jamaica to get the equipment from the port to the site was... It was a, a six-week long process. Uh, you know, we 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 had to transport the equipment over roads that were, you know, not wide enough for the equipment. So we expanded a lot of roads. <clears throat> but you also get much closer to the community. When we were transporting the, the turbine blades, now these are 185-foot-long turbine blades, and uh, any of anybody who's been to Jamaica knows it's very hard to find any road that's 185 feet long without a very sharp curve. And so we we basically shut the roads down uh, at night from like midnight till six in the morning uh, for a month to get the turbine blades up from the uh, barge pole where we brought them to the site. And it was such a big event that we actually had people come out every night to watch <laughs> and and walk along walk along with the blades. It was so exciting, what? and when we had transported the last blade they said when are you doing the next one we said well no there's no more we're done they they were disappointed so you really become part of the community and you do that everywhere and even in the states you become part of the community you're you build a plant in but in a small island you really become part of the community so Mm -hmm. we uh you know we built the plant with almost uh, i think it's 92 percent local labor Wow. We operate, the plant is operated. We have an operating team of total of about, uh, well, I guess between us and Vestas, we have about 12 employees there, all local people, not just local, not just Jamaicans, but from many of them from the local parish. So it's a, it's, you really have to approach business differently there. And I think we've, we like it. It's a, it's a good way to do business. You, you have to get to know the ministers and mm-hmm. the local politicians and, you know, address all those issues that they might have. And, you know, they all want to make sure that their community is better off after you build a plan as opposed to, uh, you know, goes falls back into whatever state they're currently in. And that's, we, we work hard to try to make that happen. So when you were describing that, the thing that came to mind for me is again, hearkening back to uh, good to great, that notion of a hedgehog concept, right? And it's the intersection of what you're passionate about, what you can be, you know, best in the world or world class at and what drives an economic engine. And, you know, I think it, it goes uh, after, after the time that we've spent to get today on this call, it goes without saying, you are truly passionate, not just about being able to deliver uh, clean, renewable, reliable energy, but about having a positive impact on the local market. Uh, I'm going to circle back around to that question specifically, but first I want to go to our next segment called Hot or Hype. And I'll name in this segment a specific market or a topic, and I'll let you spend 30 to 60 seconds on whether or not you think it's hot or not, if it's all hype or maybe a little bit of hope. Okay, so we'll start with the first topic, which is microgrids, hot or hype? 
I think that's hot. I think it's 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 really underlies the changing way people will think about energy. Um, and uh, you know, it, it's it's not perfected yet. It's uh, it's really you know, they're not really micro. They're kind of mini. Uh, you can make them work, but we've got a couple of projects we're looking at for end users in places with really, really high electric rates, and you really need that to make it work now. You won't need that to make it work in a few years as battery costs come down, mm. and we can really save them a lot of money and give them much better reliability. And I think that's that's really what microgrids offer, and it, it's it's only available now because you've you've got the cost of solar generation coming way down, already down, and probably will continue to drop. Prices won't drop, but the output will go up. The efficiency of the same panel will continue to go up. And then the battery side of it is another area where the, the progress being made is so significant that, you know, besides, you know, lower costs, which, which will happen, we also have much higher output. So I think it's not perfected yet. Uh, in five years, it will really be something that almost everybody will have. I mean, if you look at California now, they're, they're now making it, um, you know, mandatory to put solar panels on the roof. It used to be, uh, you know, an upgrade. Uh, it's kind of like most advances in cars. You know, there becomes an option that costs a lot of money when it first comes out. Then it becomes a, an option that costs less money. And then five or 10 later, years later, it's standard. And I think uh, a microgrid may become something that's standard. You already have a boiler in your house. Everybody's mm-hmm. got to have it if, unless you live in, in someplace really warm. Uh, so you, you, ha- you know you have a machine that can go on and off all by itself without anybody telling it to do. Right. And you put some solar panels and a battery and, you know, you can, you could probably see that in, you know, you could see it already in larger energy uses, schools and hospitals and such, but you could see it in communities and, uh, and maybe even large residences in five to 10 years. I think I that's, that's really going to happen. I love it. So, uh, uh, it will become ubiquitous uh, with California as an example. Always, as they say, as California, so goes the the country, and in some cases, the world. We'll move on to the next topic, and I, I'm actually really curious from your perspective because uh, Jamaica, being one of the largest economies in the Caribbean, uh, how you think this might apply to the Caribbean and Latin America? Uh, famously, uh, you know, Tesla and others haven't gone into uh, Jamaica. It's hard to build that infrastructure up to bring electric vehicles down. But uh, I was just in a chat with a friend, uh, Sean, down in Jamaica, and the new Audi e-tron, uh, and there are lots of BMW i3s that are starting to roll around on the island. Folks in Jamaica love their, uh, love, the, love to, to show off when they can uh, with, in, the, in the form of vehicles. What do you think about the impending or, or presumed vehicle-to-grid nexus of distributed generation and e-mobility? Hot or hype? I think that's hype. Um, I think it's hype for a number of reasons. There's, there are three or four changes in behavior that are needed for that to happen. Uh, and that is, you know, you need people to embrace electric cars more than they are. And what I see in the Caribbean is there is, there is a class there that could afford electric cars. But the, there is a lot of poverty and there's still a lot of people that, you know, the way we used to do in the 60s and 70s, when, when your car was broken, you picked up, the, you opened the hood and you could actually see the parts inside and, right. you know, change this or change that. And I think there's still a lot of that 
going on in the Caribbean. Uh, and so that, that has to change. Then you need to have utilities embrace you know, the, uh, having storage as a source of energy. And Jamaica is doing that. They've just started putting in a uh, kind of a demonstration uh, storage facility. But the piece of it that I still see as the problem is um, I'm not sure if I had an electric car, I'd want someone to take the power from it that I might want to get in that car and go on a long trip and I find my batteries depleted because there was a peak load and mm-hmm. the utility needed power from me. So I, I think that one's got a few big steps to overcome in the States and a few more when you get to the Caribbean. Uh, we'll move to the next topic here, uh, and I'll, I'll try to keep my comments to a minimum as I usually do in this segment. But the uh, the next topic is blockchain as it relates to energy, hot or hype? Uh, I think it's hype. Uh, it's a tool. There's a lot of softwares. When we first started doing projects, we used older software, and now newer software has come out. And this is blockchain is clearly a mm-hmm. uh, you know a, not just a new software, but it's a very different approach to to tracking transactions and you know security. So I think it'll be used, but I don't think it's going to change what happens. I think it might make what's currently going on happen better and more securely, but I don't think blockchain by itself is going to change the way um, people use energy or pay for energy. Uh, it, it may make certain transactions simpler, uh, cutting costs and cutting, you know, cut, making things happen faster. But I, I don't see that really as the motivator to a, a different uh, energy world. I love it. Not it's it's by no means uh, transformational. It might be supportive, but uh, total hype that it's going to in some way fundamentally change how people use and pay for energy. I like that. I had in the past done a lot of uh, the, what I'm going to do next, um, but frankly, a lot of my interviews lately have been uh, with folks just focused on one market. Since you are uh, well-versed in the Caribbean and Latin America, I'd like to add back into the Hotter Hype segment a piece on specific markets. And I'm going to lump Caribbean together. I'm going to lump Central America together, but, but I want you to feel free to pull out any gems that you see there like Cuba or Honduras, et cetera. So, it, with respect to the Caribbean, do you see that as a hot market or or mostly hype? Now, I think the Caribbean is a hot market. It's it's it'll be a, a slow adopter market uh, mm-hmm. because uh, the utilities there, um, most utilities, and there are some islands that are very well developed. Most utilities in the Caribbean are underinvested. That's just the reality of their economies, and so mm. big changes to an underinvested grid will could cause disruption. So they'll move slowly, and I yeah. think uh, I think that's you know <laughs> that doesn't make my life any easier, but it's mm. the reality of things. And so it's very hot. There's a great deal of potential, uh, and and I think utilities really should be figuring out how to move faster because you know. Things think their customers will take action on their own if the utilities don't take action. I think that's that's never good for utility. Is there any market uh, you know where folks might be looking, thinking, "Oh, this is going to be great"? Uh, I, I might point out how American Airlines started, you know, twelve flights to Cuba, and now they're back down to one. Uh, are there any markets that just sort are all hype in in the in your view? 
Well, I, I, I think hype's the wrong word. I think Cuba's a great market on a couple of points, and it's a horrible market on other mm-hmm. points. The, the great market is they, they actually have a decent grid. Uh, they have actual detailed plans of where they'd like to add renewables. You know, it's not a matter of convincing them to do mm-hmm. it or telling them that it'll work. So <clears throat> they're way ahead of many of the other islands on planning and acceptance, uh, and they have a lot of land and... Uh, you know, all those ingredients where they're uh, so far it is, there's not, there's no clear pathway forward is how to get around, how to finance it uh, and how to be sure you get paid because they don't right. have access to, to dollars or euros or yen or any of those, you know, tradable currencies. Uh, I was down there for a visit uh, two years ago. They actually have separate money for foreigners and locals. And so oh. there's a, the question you ask yourself is, you know, if I sell them power, where are they going to get the money to pay me? And the answer is going to be, well, from trade. You know, if they sell things to other countries, they get revenue in, they use that to pay for electricity. Yeah. But until they have their own citizens paying for their electricity with the same currency, it's, it's going to be challenging. And I think that is the intractable problem with Cuba. Hmm. And I think the American Airlines example, they all went down there and I, you know, it was very great. You know, took a direct flight from Newark down to, uh, uh, to Cuba, Havana, is that people aren't, you know, they're not building nice hotels. And so people are mostly going there now on cruise ships and right. cruise ships are, you know, that business is booming there because everybody wants to see Cuba because it's been you know, kind of this mystery place. It's, it's very, very good, very nice people, very friendly people. It was uh, really an enjoyable visit. But uh, I and and I identified a few wind projects we could do, and that would fit, you know, what I would like in the way of, you know, uh, size and type of capacity, and the wind regime is good. But no one can, no one has yet figured out how to get over the payment, yeah, or the ability to pay. And I think mm-hmm. that is. You know, and they pay for oil. They obviously uh, import oil, so they they must be paying for it somehow. But I think the and and the embargo, by the way, you know, and I shouldn't I shouldn't not mention that a lot of banks are afraid to do business in Cuba because of the U.S. embargo. Yeah, and so unless until somebody takes some effort to sort that out, I think Cuba will be a very high potential, very low probability market. Understood. Well, we could do this on every country in the in the Caribbean, and I probably will dig deeper with you just for personal curiosity down at the CREF conference. But for the sake of today's uh, episode, let's uh, move on to Central America. Hot, high. Okay. What do you what do you see happening there? Well, Central America has a, has an, a unique situation. Almost every country in Central America already gets about sixty percent of their energy from hydro. Mm-hmm. So renewable is not their primary driver. Their primary driver is cost. Mm-hmm. Which is uh, which is is, is is great because right now renewables is com- very competitive on cost compared to thermal uh, energy, whether it's oil or, or natural gas. So uh, I, I think that I think there's again a lot of interest and a lot of uh, a lot of potential there. Their, their load growth is going so fast they have to build new plants, and it's a great opportunity for renewable. Mm-hmm. Um, but the issue they really have is they, their prioritization. Most of the countries are focusing on getting off oil onto natural gas. And so Panama just awarded over the last couple of years two big power plant contracts that come along with natural gas facilities, and right. AES is already building a natural gas facility there is supposed to be another one associated with another plant. El Salvador awarded a contract a few years ago to a developer to build a 350 megawatt plant with LNG. And most of the other countries have an LNG dream. 
And what we've seen is the actual ability to move ahead on renewables is being held up by those that focus on LNG, which you know is is a good. I think getting off dirty oil onto LNG is better than not. But you know, doing yeah. planning your system better to deal with renewables. And again, the this like the Caribbean, most Central American countries have an underinvested grid, and mm-hmm. so renewables usually require grid upgrades, which, yeah. you know, there's only so much money to go around. So I think, I think again, I don't think it's hype. I just think there's, there's some steps that have to happen before uh, that market uh, opens up. And they're very achievable steps, unlike the Cuba uh, financial issue. It, this is just planning and, and uh, dealing with uh, some of the issues uh, one at a time. And then, you, then there'll be a lot more room for renewables there. Indeed. Well, as I look at the map on your website, that kind of outlines where you are looking, where you're thinking about uh, and developing markets and projects. Clearly, you some are you know invested, like Jamaica, Guatemala, Saint Croix. Uh, others are investigating. I might say, as you think about Latin America, what else might you highlight for listeners that? is uh, either hot or, or totally hype, things that you've already written off because you've, you've bumped, your, bumped your knees there a couple of times or places like Colombia or Mexico, perhaps, that, uh, that have potential. Well, it's funny you mentioned those two countries. I think uh, Mexico uh, has a great deal of potential. And in fact, they've, they've done a lot in, in getting new renewable energy. But they're, uh, And Mexico's went through this same problem when they brought in IPPs for natural gas. There was such a frenzy to get into Mexico. It's an OECD country. It's uh, it's got a, a you know a working economy that the prices have gotten bid down so low that only really really big companies can survive there. And so if you looked at the RFP they had about about a year and a half ago, it was won by mostly large companies, NG and uh, NL and mm. a couple of the other big ones. And the pricing cleared at, you know, two cents a kilowatt yeah. hour, 1.8 cents. And that's, you know, they're, they're going to have to make money in a very different way. They're going to have to really be looking at residual value to make money as opposed to short term value. And that's not our business. So I think Mexico, well, I like the market and uh, they, they have a lot of good, you know, renewable resource, whether it's wind or solar, that they went through a deregulation and that still hasn't all settled in. But I think the competition there is just way too much. And again, bigger companies want bigger projects and they'll compete the prices way down. We're happy with, you know, smaller projects. In fact, yeah. matter of fact, it probably fits our, our investment program better. So we, we're not going to really Unless, unless there's a uh, you know a targeted maybe commercial industrial deal, I don't think we're going to be you know very successful in Mexico for the next couple of years. It might change. Mm-hmm. I think Colombia is another one which again has almost uh, has a lot of hydro, so they, you know, I shouldn't say they have no renewables, but they have very little solar and wind. They have a lot of solar and wind resource all up in the uh, the north uh, north east of the country, very weak transmission in the northeast of the country. So they need a lot of investment in transmission before the renewable energy market can grow. They also don't really have very high electric prices. So, you know, to go and do commercial and industrial projects, you know, it's very hard to save a lot of money for customers. Mm-hmm. And so I think Colombia is, you know, there's there's several local large Colombian generation companies that probably will get a lot of the market. The bigger projects will maybe end up being taken the same way Mexico uh, 
was dealt with in, mm-hmm, right. with some of the larger international companies. So I think uh, you know I'm less optimistic about a role for us in Colombia now than I was a year and a half ago when things really started to wake up in Colombia. So I would I would say those are probably two countries that we still have on our list as you know interested in. But yeah. um, every time we look yeah. at something there, we kind of shrug and say yeah, it's not for us. Well, you mentioned uh, we'll we'll wrap we'll wrap up the hotter hype segment here, uh, which was was extremely interesting. That was it was really wonderful. Thank you for your perspectives and insights on that. You mentioned that uh, something that fits more your investment thesis and uh, and strategic direction are these sort of some somewhat smaller projects. Many uh, are aware that are interested that are that know the market, but the large audience probably is not. You guys purchased a project in St. Croix from NRG that was, for the most part, decimated by the hurricanes last season. You've spent some time rehabilitating and restoring that project, which, as, as I read, and this is not my, like my inside knowledge, I read that it generated for about a year at roughly 40% uh, of its capacity. I'd like to hear from the perspective of an, uh, the IPP who now just took that project over from NRG, what precautions are you taking in that project that maybe NRG didn't or couldn't because of the way they had to capitalize to begin with. And how do you protect that investment? How do you think about this now that you're going into St. Croix as an IPP and, you know, taking care of that community as well? Well, NRG didn't build that plant, so I, I, I won't put it on them. I, I will say uh, it was less damaged than many other solar plants. The solar array itself stood up very well to, uh, to the wind, and we've, we estimate it was faced with 175 to 180 mile an hour wind. Wow. You know, there's always an Achilles heel on a power plant, and in this particular plant, the Achilles heel was a, a roof fan on an inverter building. You think a roof fan, well, what, what do you do with that? How do you make that hard? Well, it turns out the roof fan was, uh, you know, if you've ever seen one, they sit on the top of a roof, you don't even notice them most of the time. And, mm. and it's a big fan and it's surrounded by sheet metal and that sheet metal is, is bolted onto the building. Yeah. What happened during the storm is one of the roof fans was blown off the building, which uh, when we look back, it was it was just connected to a wooden beam, a wooden, like a two by four, with some uh, sheet metal screws. Right. And uh, those tore right through the sheet metal under those winds, and the roof fan blew off, and the building and all the electrical equipment in the building got flooded. Mm. And most of it was uh, damaged, I wouldn't say beyond repair, but the repair cost was actually higher than the replacement cost. And so what, we, what we've what we done now is we've replaced pretty much all the equipment. There's one last piece we're working on this next week. And uh, by probably early November, the plant will be back up to full, full power. We did have to repair some of the racking that got bent, but it held up very well. So... Um, Oh, but then you say, well, how are you protected from happening again? Well, that fan was replaced with a new fan, but it wasn't just screwed in with sheet metal into uh, wood. There was uh, now uh, <laughs> real bolts and iron used to mm. make sure it stays on. We reinforced the other fan that didn't get blown off the same way. And we're now looking over that entire facility, looking for the Achilles heel or the, the next Achilles heel to make sure that when the next storm blows through, yeah, there may be some damage. Some, you know, yeah. some of the damage was uh, from debris flying into some panels, and there was probably seventy or eighty panels had to be changed because of that. Mm-hmm. But overall, that's the new thinking in resilience: is not so much designing the racking for one hundred eighty mile an hour winds, which we should do, and we would do that if we did it again. But we design everything for one hundred eighty mile an hour winds, and you know, including things that you didn't even think of. 
and and I think that's the um, that's probably something if you'd want to do it all again, you'd, you'd do differently. That is really insightful. Uh, the notion that uh, the new normal, and you know, thanks climate change, the new normal with potentially what might be uh, recategorized as Category Six hurricanes, is that we have to design in the Caribbean and and other markets subject, subject to that. It might mention cyclone areas in Asia as well. Is 180 mile per hour winds instead of 140, which is what the vast majority of developers were developing to uh, in previous standards. You mentioned just now the, the term resiliency. How do you think about resiliency as an IPP operating in these markets where, as you said, the, the utility is undercapitalized, the grid is, um, is poor, to put it best? Well, yeah, the, the, the fixing what they have there now is, is a, a challenge, and it may take another storm to um, you know, mess things up, so they have to fix them. But the question is, when you get to rebuild it or when you get to replace it, how do you do it differently? Right. And there's new technologies. There's poles, you know, composite poles that can stand up to 200 plus mile an hour winds. They cost a bit more. But, um, you know, you don't have to replace them when the wind comes again. There's a lot of work going on, for example, in St. Croix now, or all of U.S. Virgin Islands, is when they build a new road, they actually put in underground conduits for power lines. They don't put power lines in them now because they're not there. But the goal is to ultimately have a buried system, or at least around uh, populated areas have a buried system. So the, you, know, you won't have damage of poles flying down and transformers on poles getting blown off and wires on poles shorting each other, you know, hitting each other and shorting out. So, so there's a, a you know new way of thinking when you build things. Now, the bad part is it costs more, and these are countries, as I said, that don't usually have enough to do everything they'd like to do. So if they spend more on what they do, they'll do even less. And I think that's a reality that the whole market's going to have to figure out. And one way to pay for that is by using cheaper energy. And renewable energy is cheaper than gas and oil. And so if you use more renewable energy, you don't have to automatically lower your rates. You could use some of the extra money you're collecting to harden the system. So I think it's a that whole mindset, that whole thinking set, because most utility rates are set up with a fixed charge and an energy pass-through. And the customer only knows what the total is. They don't care whether it's a fixed charge or energy pass-through. They care that they're paying 30 or 28 or 35 or 40 cents a kilowatt. And I think if you can lower that rate a bit, Mm -hmm. but not as much as, you know, every cent you save on energy and use that money to harden and reinforce and be ready for a storm, maybe even just with more spare parts and an extra couple of line trucks, then you, uh, you're, you're making things better for the future. But that's not been the mindset there. The mindset's always been, gee, I have, I have a budget to do 100, I have 100 things to do and only enough money in my budget to do 50. Mm-hmm. Which 50 do I do? And I think the, you know, the, the fact that another storm comes through, that, that 50 will get blown down, maybe makes you think of doing, doing 45, but doing them stronger. So Bruce, as we move into a segment I call Lessons Learned, I like to hear from you. What are some key lessons or takeaways from some of the most important mentors in your life and career? Well, I think there's two, two, two general lessons, and one is to be flexible um, because you, you know we always come up with a great plan to do something, and, and we go to do it, and we find that the people we need to do it with don't agree that that's a great plan. So rather than, um, you know, lose, lose a lot of sleep and get too uh, wound up by the fact that someone rejected what you want to do, or let's say didn't like it, 
is uh, spend some time figuring out what they'd like that still makes sense to do. And I think that's a uh, especially important in the Caribbean because uh, the Caribbean is, uh, you know, has ways of doing things that they're very comfortable with, and you have to fit into their their structure as opposed to them fitting into your structure. So being flexible but still keeping your eye on the goal, and the goal is to build a renewable energy plant and obviously get a return on your investment. But there's many ways to do that. So that's that's the first one. The second one, you think you know what you're doing. You think you know what all the risks are, but you're probably missing some. And so we spend a lot of time thinking about what could go wrong and what we haven't thought of, whether it's uh, you know interest rates going higher or a construction problem or spare parts. In an island, you probably need to have more spare parts than you would if you were in the States because you can get anything FedExed overnight to the States. It's FedEx is not overnight to the Caribbean in many cases, and certainly mm-hmm. if it's a package. And you might lose a week or two going through customs. Hmm. So, you know, we, it, you really type, you have to think about things that are, especially coming from the States, you have to think about problems that would not happen in the States that would mm-hmm. likely happen in the Caribbean. And, you know, doing that is kind of risk assessment. Uh, and, and they could be minor things, but uh, doing that and maybe you don't take action on all of them, but at least you're aware of it. So, you know, when something comes up, you know that that's going to be a problem. We ought to get on it right away. And mm-hmm. I think those are the two lessons that you could apply anywhere in your life, but certainly to this business. I love it. And I appreciate I appreciate the, the, the focus on the non-obvious obstacles that you have to overcome. You know, be flexible, keep your eye on the goal, but be flexible and then recognize that you've probably missed something. So contingency planning is key. Two very good takeaways that I think anyone listening here will benefit to apply to their own business. I wonder, is there any advice you might have as a uh, now, I might call you seasoned entrepreneur for fledgling entrepreneurs like myself in the throes of startup life? (laughs) Uh, Expect everything to go wrong and be patient. (laughs) Got it. What, well, what has the, uh, as you have been very patient uh, and you are looking around the corners, what corners are you looking at right now with regards to the solar business models that are innovating in our market? What do you see as the next frontier, if you will? Well, I think that, you know, people have always thought about buying electric power as, uh, you know, you have a meter and you pay per kilowatt hour or megawatt hour, however you measure it. And I think with when you get into renewables, whether it's wind or solar, that probably won't be the best way to do it. it. It sometimes works better for me, but we've actually found some customers more interested in a fixed payment you know, like a demand charge. We'll pay you, you put in a 500 kilowatt system and we'll pay you this much money to do it and you have to maintain it. So it's, you know, it's still an IPP, but rather than focus on the kilowatt hours, they're focusing on the power use. And and what that does is it, it then takes the focus out of, uh, away from, gee, what if it makes more more energy than I need a couple of hours? Well, I'm going to want to get paid for it and they might not want to have to use it. Right. But they're still saving money by having it. So I think, I think when there's no fuel going in and it's only a fixed capital charge and pretty predictable O&M charges, I think that might be a trend that's coming. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not sure it's going to catch on with utilities, but it probably should. Mm. Um, but I think it's a... Um, it it, it, it it can be done because there's really no variable fuel charge. And I think that's the big difference between renewables and, uh, and uh, all, you know, fossil type plants. Yeah, I, I am definitely going to dig into that topic with you more when I see you in person, because I'm really fascinated <laughs> by how 
uh, that can play out. I agree with you that on in island uh, nations, um, th this model makes a lot more sense than, say, uh, New Jersey. Uh, in terms of, of acceptability or, or believability or, or potential to migrate towards this type of model. It's very interesting. We're turning uh, towards home plate here. Uh, this segment I call Le Leadership, Learning, and Legacy. I believe that leaders are readers. And many, uh, myself included, learn from books what we, uh, so that we don't have to learn from uh, the School of Hard Knocks. Uh, I'd love to know, is there a book that you have given away or recommended the most and why? I read a lot of books, but I, I can't tell you I remember them by name and such. Mm -hmm. But the basic learning book that I find uh, most valuable is uh, Who Moved the Cheese? Ah, right. That book? Who Moved My Cheese, yeah. Yeah, and that book is really so important in an industry that's innovating and in a market that every market's going to be different. Is You can't ever really expect things that happened last year to happen again behaviors of people changed, expectations of people changed. Mm -hmm. And so if you keep going back to the same place, trying to get, uh, get your cheese and you find, you find it's not there and you, you, you fall apart, you, um, you, um, you, you have to really be able to, uh, to adapt and, and, and think about what might have happened as opposed to just saying, hmm, it's not working. And I think, you know, I read a lot of other books. I read, you know, spy books. I read history books. And they all have the same story. You know, it's the guy that anticipates and reacts best is always the guy who wins. Uh, whether it's, uh, you know, Winston Churchill or, or someone like that. You know, when you anticipate what could be and what could go wrong and, and plan for it, or at least be aware of that as an option or as a potential. I think that's the, um, you know, the planning for risk and reacting to it when it happens is really, really the, uh, you could find that in pretty much any book. Yeah, and it goes back to what you said uh, just a few minutes ago, which is uh, one of the key takeaways for you is the notion of contingency planning, right? Is there a book that if you, uh, perhaps it's one of the ones that you mentioned, but if you were to go back to yourself, uh, you know, now uh, a few decades ago when you were recently getting out of college, about to start that job, or maybe that internship at Exxon, that you might gift yourself to say, hey, hey kid, you'd really benefit from these lessons? Well, I can't think of a specific book, but the ones, the, the, the topic, I think, and I've read a number of books on this, is, is the whole concept of team building and teamwork. Mm -hmm. Because, uh, you know, the, there's so many, everything you do, you know, there's, there's usually one primary theme to what you're doing, but there's always secondary themes. And mm -hmm. you usually need a team that's, uh, that's not only able to do it, but also aligned so that everybody's working to get to the same goal. And there's, uh, you know, lots of books on how to appreciate people's strengths, you know, just because they don't know how to, you know, design a power plant doesn't mean they're not going to be valuable to the overall process of building a power plant and understanding people's skills and interests and recognizing that and making sure that you're using those skills and interests and not putting them in the wrong job and being disappointed in them, I think is the, uh, is, is what, what I probably should have learned earlier. Well, as someone who has been uh, practicing the art of work for quite some time, I'd love to hear if there's any particular habit or consistent practice that for you has had a great impact on the way you go about your daily life. Well, I think one of the things I do is I, I read everything I can, especially if it has something to do with this industry, even if it's about a, you know, a, a hydro plant in Kazakhstan. I, you know, I'll read about it because there's always a story that you could pick up of like, oh, they use some new technology or, oh, that they didn't, <laughs> they should have thought of that. And so I'll read about, uh, again, things that aren't necessarily 
directly related to what I'm doing, um, and whether it's, uh, and again, I, I'll, if anything's in the paper on energy, I'll read it or a magazine. Uh, mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, I try to get life lessons and business lessons from mm-hmm. everything you can read. I think that that's something that everybody should do more of. You can't learn too much, you know? I love it. And I love that you look for indirect correlation to help stimulate your own thought process that you can apply to your business. Is there a place that you look most often? Is there a journal that you read daily or weekly? Where do you get most of your information? I read the Times. I read the journal. I... I, I'm on, I read articles from Bloomberg, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, you know, the, I, I try to, <laughs> I follow, but I try not to get too sucked into all the political news, but clearly mm-hmm. that affects my business too. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, again, I, <laughs> I'm always listening to, to a news or a, or a, you know, some sort of radio show and, uh, to, uh, to make sure we, uh, you know, there's something going on that I, I, I at least know how it fits into the, the bigger scheme of things. I love it. I love it. Most leaders, by the way, I've found are uh, are very similar to you, Bruce, in that the guy at uh, or or gal at the top of the company is trying to educate themselves as much as possible and constantly voraciously consuming uh, information, trying to find that indirect correlation to help their business grow. So that's really helpful. Bruce, before I ask the final question, I'd like to know if, if someone wanted to reach out to you or find out more about BMR, how could they do that? Well, I and BMR have Twitter accounts. I can tell you, I, I, I don't have a lot of followers, so BMR mm-hmm. does does uh, have a Twitter account. We have a LinkedIn page, both Bruce Levy and BMR Energy. Um, I have an email, uh-huh. dlevy at bmrenergy.com, and uh, we have a website, uh, bmrenergy.com. I look forward to seeing you in Miami in a week and uh, digging into some of these topics more deeply, Bruce. Before we go, let's end today with a bold prediction. What one thing do you see happening in the market that perhaps nobody else is tracking? Bruce, what's in your crystal ball? Well, I think we talked about it a little bit before. I think uh, renewables will continue to take a larger share of the market. I think uh, as battery technology becomes, um, you know, more... uh, competitive and it really is it's it's moving at leaps and bounds now uh, microgrids will be a bigger part of the power supply uh, really everywhere and I think that's uh, that's my that's my prediction and that's how we're kind of planning our our work well as that uh, does unfold we'll certainly be talking about it here on Suncast and we'd love to have you back at some point in the future to see the progress of BMR and hopefully your Twitter following. But in the meantime, we'll let you run Bruce Levy of BMR Energy, the CEO and founder. Thank you for joining us on Suncast today, sir. Thank you, my pleasure. I've had a good time talking to you. You know, I really fondly remember the first time I met Bruce in person. We were standing in a coffee line in Miami during a conference, and I noticed his name tag. Like me, he's not a man of great physical stature, but I had heard of him previously and felt really lucky to be finding myself beside this giant of industry. We struck up a conversation, and I learned a lot about his company. And that moment established the foundation I needed to be able to call on and chat with Bruce moving forward. That's the value of networking, folks, and attending some of these conferences. And I'm looking forward to that opportunity with uh, other fantastic leaders like Bruce at next week's Caribbean Renewable Energy Forum. Learn more and register for your spot by clicking on the CREF logo over at mysuncast.com. Don't forget to use the code SUNCAST at checkout to get a 15% discount as my personally invited guest. I hope to see you there. Hey, while you're over on the website, I'd like to encourage you as well to sign up for my weekly newsletter. 
I usually share my thoughts on each episode and I'll let you know if there's something else interesting that you should know about. Like the next episodes of Suncast, of course, but also where I'll be in the world and how we can meet up and new ways for you to learn and stay ahead of the pack. You can also check out our Suncast tribe. Speaking of ahead of the pack, these are my inner circle of listeners and advisors. You can click on the member button to learn a lot more about that. Next up on Suncast. And I specialized in paleoclimatology which is studying how the Earth climatic systems have changed throughout millennia, not even millennia, eons. You know, since the Earth was formed, we've gone through all these different waves and cycles of how the planet works. Many of you were enamored with episode number 97 about SolarCoin and Nick Gogarty, and you asked for more blockchain and cryptocurrency insights. So here's our next installment. Mr. Abe Cambridge of Sun Exchange really blew my mind with this interview, uh, telling about how he has democratized solar ownership down to the solar cell level, and from South Africa, no less. So tune in next Thursday to hear the whole story. In the meantime, I look forward to interacting with you via Twitter, LinkedIn, and inside the Suncast Tribe Slack and WhatsApp channels. Power on, Solar Warriors. If you're not a Tribe member yet, I look forward to someday welcoming you into the Tribe, my friend. And thanks again for showing up. It's half the battle.